There's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Hello and welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. This is a show about the creators of three world-renowned blocks in Beverly Hills. And on this episode, we go to the Oscars. We don't really want to see these idols up there just in regular plain clothing. In fact, I, I think that sometimes some of the gowns that we see on the red carpet are so boring, and I wish that people would tend to uh, lean in a little bit more of a costume direction in a tasteful way. We're looking at how the glamorous fashion of Rodeo Drive makes it onto the Hollywood red carpet. We are going to talk with two leading stylists. You'll hear from Mary Fellows, who made Olivia Coleman a fashion icon at the Oscars in 2019. And you'll meet Alexandra Mandelkorn. She's the stylist for Janelle Monet, who wore 2020's most spectacular Oscar dress. We'll also ask... What happens to the red carpet when award season goes online and a new consciousness about racism puts Hollywood in a serious mood? Let's start, though, with Kathy Gohari of the Rodeo Drive Committee. Red carpet is very synonymous, I have to say, with Rodeo Drive. It has become the center of where truly the decisions are made. Um, most people walk on Rodeo Drive and look at the beautiful stores and they think, okay, well, there's a retail store. There's so much more to that. To the people who have had an opportunity to be involved in any part of the award shows, um, they're more familiar with what we call our back of house uh, teams. You know, almost every brand has their own public relations person, has their own Hollywood VIP relations. It's no longer the days where a celebrity decides that she wants to attend a fashion show or uh, attend an award show and starts calling up designers and say, what should I wear? That doesn't happen anymore. We are now living through a whole genre of what we call celebrity stylists. And they're working very closely with the celebrity. So it's almost like a triangle between the stylist, the celebrity, and the designer. So it's 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 like a chain of command, but really very, very important relationships that, that drive these creations that, that one sees on the red carpet. Truly, yes. So you talk to a certain celebrity and you look at the red carpet and you see she has this gorgeous, let's say, yellow taffeta gown. There's no accident in any part of that gown. The fabric, the color, the volume, the makeup, the hair, the jewelry, it all goes hand in hand. And I have to say, obviously, some of the most important uh, award shows take place in L.A. So at some point, we all get to see many of these outfits before the world, since they're being altered in our stores, or there are secret fittings that take places in our VIP rooms in order to avoid the paparazzi. And of course, it's top secret, and we try to keep it as private as possible because nobody wants the yellow taffeta to be leaked before it gets on the red carpet. After an award show, traditionally, customers arrive in boutiques around the world, including Rodeo Drive, asking for items similar to what they've seen on the red carpet. And often these dresses inspire bridal gowns. Have you had that experience of customers coming in and 
asking to see something, say, in the same color of a Valentino gown that's appeared on a red carpet? Very much so. Almost instantly, even during the show on the red carpet, many of us, we get texts from clients saying, oh my goodness, I have to have that dress. Or does it come in any other color? Or do you think we could make that in white for my daughter's wedding? So absolutely, it's instant. Literally, the moment it hits the red carpet, we get feedback. Mm. Kathy, can you explain how a fashion house decides to dress a celebrity? One has to have arrived at a certain station to have access to, say, a great iconic luxury brand like Valentino. It's just not open to everyone. Absolutely. Very rarely will you get a designer to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars on making a special one-of-a-kind gown for an unknown talent. That just doesn't happen. But there are many, many newcomers who most people might not even know who they are. But the celebrity stylists and the celebrity and the actual designers are more in the know. Mm -hmm. And they invest in their very near future. Mm -hmm. Final question. Uh, we're seeing award shows broadcast remotely. We're seeing celebrities dressing up for Zoom calls. We're seeing yes. celebrities appearing in their homes wearing designer finery. Like, why is this important? Again, we go back to emotions. You know, when you are being recorded. And just because there's nobody in the room with you, the camera is there. So technically the whole world is watching. Even more importantly now, before if you had an audience of a few hundred or a few thousands, now it has multiplied because everybody can have access through their computers. Mm. So it's even more important to look special. Kathy Gohari, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you so much. Kathy Gohari is Valentino's Director of Client Engagement. Rodeo Drive and the red carpet go together like champagne and caviar, dating back to September 1939. That's when John Frederick's millinery shop opened at 306 North Rodeo Drive, just prior to the December release of Gone with the Wind, a movie, we should add, that has not aged well because of its sympathy for the Confederacy. John Fredericks was founded by two men named John, John P. John and John Fred Fredericks. They designed seven hats for Vivian Lee's portrayal of Scarlett O'Hara. Kristen Dior's milliner, Stephen Jones, describes one of them. It was a big straw hat, uh, very, very big. It was huge on her because he really understood that the hat was a talisman, a, a, a metaphor for glamour, that so often the star's feet would not be in frame, but their faces always would be. And however their face was framed was probably the most important part of the film. And he knew that he had to make that big, striking, simple moment. And that's what he did throughout his career. The hats were the crowning glory of Gone with the Wind. The studio even exhibited them alongside the film premieres, helping to make the movie a phenomenon that triumphed at the 12th Academy Awards in 1940. 
The following year, the dress designer, Howard Greer, opened his boutique at 310 North Rodeo in the same building as John Frederick's. Howard Greer gowned a long list of stars and notably created a drindle skirt and peasant blouse for Ingrid Bergman when she received the Best Actress Oscar for Gaslight in 1945. Then, fast forward to Giorgio Beverly Hills. Fred Heyman opened the store in 1961 and often supplied the red carpet's hottest looks. Fashion and design writer Rose Apodaca explains. It was a kind of glamour that was over the top that we could see in dresses from Bob Mackie, but it also had, you know, mesh dresses by Stephen Burroughs that, uh, you know, Farrah Fawcett wore to the uh, 1978 Oscars. So it was kind of... As the store got larger, it sort of broadened the kind of clients it appealed to. But in the end, those clients wanted glamour. They wanted sparkle. They wanted, you know, to to look fabulous. Famously, Fred Heyman became fashion consultant for the Academy Awards. What kind of impact did his input have on the red carpet? Well, what happened was that the producer, Alan Carr, in, I believe it was around the early to mid 80s, asked Fred to start doing these shows, pre-shows, talking about what trends were going to be on the red carpet. I mean, this seems like such a normal thing we've gotten used to now, but it was really something quite unusual at the time to be talking about the clothes at these award shows. And for really recognizing that, more importantly, the, you know, the television viewers at home were dying to know what people were wearing. That's Rose Apodaca. She wrote the book Fred Heyman, The Extraordinary Difference, the story of Rodeo Drive, Hollywood glamour, and the showman who sold it all. Fred Heyman's son, Robert, says his father's role in that transition reflected changing times. Celebrities were coming off of the really relaxed and comfortable 60s and 70s where you had sort of this very deconstructed and almost hippie-ish type of look that translated into the 70s uh, look, uh, which certainly there were fashions of those times which were, which were great. But as you started rounding out into the late 80s and the 90s, I believe the celebrities started understanding more of what was expected of them at the time. They were looking at themselves more as brands and their managers were really working with them as well and their handlers in creating these brands. And so I think that the red carpet was indicative of that. It was a, an opportunity for the, the celebrities to get some face time and some body time with those fashions in front of all of the media that was there. And they could spend time talking and interacting with each other and various other people who were at the event. Uh, And so it turned out to be a home run. Really what he was doing was rebranding the Academy Awards and taking a look at that arrivals area and kind of moving it forward in terms of fashion and kind of acting like a stylist in many ways, how stylists work today. That was his creative marketing brain at work. It's really worked out fantastically. If you go to watch the Academy's awards today, so many people watch 
the segment on the red carpet, and then as this, they start turning off as the, as the Academy Awards get, get longer and longer, uh, they start fading out. But uh, no, I think at the time it was a very, very significant move uh, with the red carpet. And I think that Fred Heyman uh, was a big part of it. Uh, he, he was, uh, along with others, he was one of the people who crafted the strategy behind it, the tactics behind it, but worked with many people to, to make it happen. And cool. there was a great deal of coordination that took place as well. At the same token, by the same token, you didn't want to have two celebrities showing up in the same exact outfit. And that did happen uh, in a couple of instances. That's Robert Heyman, son of Fred Heyman, the founder of Giorgio Beverly Hills, and by 1990, the Oscars fashion consultant. Around that time, Giorgio Armani entered the picture. His boutique opened on Rodeo Drive in 1988, and he hired Wanda McDaniel. She established Mr. Armani as a Hollywood powerhouse and created a new role on Rodeo Drive, VIP Relations. This forever changed fashion's relationship with Hollywood. And for a while, Tinseltown's leading men wore only Armani. Kathy Gohari of Valentino and the Rodeo Drive Committee worked for Armani back then. During those years when people used to talk about the fashion on the red carpet, I mean, it was almost like a joke. Every man who came on the red carpet, Armani, 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 Armani. There was no other brand. Really, there was no other brand. Everybody had a slightly different version of the Armani suit or the Armani tux suit. And each one looked better and hotter than the other. Truly, it was a sight to be seen. After that, the floodgates opened. By the new millennium, designers started forging contractual relationships with celebrities. This ensured a brand's presence on the red carpet. But now awards season is in tumult. We are still in the midst of the pandemic. The Oscars, usually held in late February, have been delayed to April 25th, 2021. Film festivals in Venice, Toronto, and Sundance are all set to take place in person, but in ways that encourage social distancing. The Emmys will take place on September 20th, hosted by Jimmy Kimmel and staged virtually rather than physically. So what will the red carpet look like and should the show go on? Chris Gardner is the Hollywood Reporter's senior staff writer and rambling reporter columnist. You know, the easy answer to that is the Oscars drive so much of Hollywood. I mean, it's so embedded in the in the DNA and the blueprint of the way that that the world works in Hollywood. It's an ecosystem and so many things revolve around it. Um, and I think that's why the show can go on. And, you know, when I say that and it's like, does the show always need to go on? I mean, no. And people are dying and that's the that, that should be first and foremost on everyone's mind is that, you know, we're dealing with a global pandemic and is that as important as handing out gold statues? No. And, and I don't think anyone here would say that. But I do think, you know, this award show of any, you know, needs to go on and they'll find a way to do it. Certainly the Academy has operated during times of crisis you've you know you've mentioned the war world war ii it went on with a very kind of muted feeling and a sober dress code yeah 
you've got your ear to the ground. What are you hearing about, say, the look, the feel, the tone of Oscars 2021? I think what's really happening is everyone in the film business is really looking to TV to see how the Emmys are handling their show. And then there's that other big thing that's happening in November with the election. But also, you know, there's been so much talk of diversity and inclusion and rightfully so. And I think that will also come into play in some respect. But, you know, does but to boil it all down to like, what will it look like? What will people look like? I mean, I, I don't know. That tends to sort of be reflected on the times as they're happening in that moment. Um, but I, I, you know, I think a lot of people are hoping by April, a little bit of glitz and a little bit of glamour and a lot of, you know, celebration of the art of film will be really embraced. Tell me about what you're hearing about the Emmys. What I'm hearing from a lot of people is that, there's a big rush to make it really stand out as a virtual production. And I think that, you know, there will be certain elements that they're hoping to do in person and then other ones that'll be virtual. But, you know, everyone was looking to the person that went before them and the BET Awards recently happened. And so the Emmys looked to that. You know, I'm hearing reports of glass partitions between celebrities, no reporters, masks that coordinate with dresses, what are you hearing about about how the red carpet will take shape? Yeah, I mean, I've I'm hearing the same things, but I I I can't wait to see the first actress that pulls off a mask that matches her <laughs> dress or or intentionally doesn't match it. Um, and and Bronwyn, I think that we have to consider too that that some of those masks won't just be color coordinated; they will be statements. They'll be they'll be political mm-hmm. statements. They'll probably be social justice related statements, and rightfully so. Um, so it could it could be really exciting. I mean, look at what Beyonce looked like at the BET Awards when she got that big award at the end of the night. Um, it could not have been a more prescient award for the the movement and the time moving forward. But she still looked amazing. She still wore diamonds. She still had a gown on. Um, and I think that you know there's room for both. That was Chris Gardner. He is the Hollywood Reporter's senior staff writer and rambling reporter columnist. The other important event on the award season calendar is the Venice Film Festival. It takes place in September. Kate Blanchett is president of the jury this year, and she'll be there. Tilda Swinton is also set to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award in person. Paula Jacoby spent many years as entertainment editor for Vanity Fair Italia. I asked her why it matters for actors to have a presence at a festival like Venice. Well, for many reasons, I think, because uh, um, the Venice Film Festival has uh, a great leverage from an intellectual and artistic point of view. And at the same time, uh, it is glamorous. Uh, It has its roots uh, um, in a very aristocratic uh, and chic event, because that's the way it started uh, with the Conte Volpi uh, back in the 30s. Paolo, are you going to Venice? I still don't know. I haven't made up my mind. What's holding you back, possibly? Social distancing, because uh, the situation is not, uh, is not clear enough, so I don't feel comfortable yet. Mm. We've seen uh, 
issues and causes uh, such as sustainability, Time's Up Me Too, really affect how celebrities have dressed on the red carpet. Um, Now there's Black Lives Matter and political issues. How do you think all of these will change or evolve the look on the red carpet, if there is a red carpet? If there is a red carpet, maybe, uh, I don't know how they evolve the look, but certainly they can evolve um, the way celebrities choose the brands they want to work with. Maybe they want brands that are more ethically interesting, um, and uh, maybe they could choose smaller brands. I think that this is something that could happen. This could be the interesting change. That's Paola Jacoby. She has covered the festival circuit for decades. Now let's meet two of Hollywood's top stylists. They've both worked closely with brands to give their clients distinct identities on the red carpet. First, Alexandra Mandelkorn. She loved dress-up as a child and trained to become an opera singer. After vocal nodules got in the way, she went back to her first passion and wound up getting an introduction to the musician and actor Janelle Monet. The first job that we did together was actually the Pink music video, um, which was iconic and legendary. And I just felt like it was the universe. It was the universe speaking to me and just putting me in the right place at the right time. And it was wonderful. They formed a partnership and worked with Ralph Lauren to create the dress that caused a sensation at this year's Oscars. Well, Janelle has been a fashion icon since day one, so I really can't take any credit for that. But, you know, the thing I think that really connects us um, the deepest is that we both love telling stories. Um, We really do love, you know, creating worlds for her to exist in. So I I came on during her album cycle. And and for that, for Dirty Computer, you know, we were really creating um, a world for her to exist in that was very future-focused, lots of 80s references, um, but still, like, with her Android mixed in. Um, We also started playing with color for the first time for her, really. So um, we're adding that kind of storyline in there and what kind of color palettes uh, were we going to use to tell her story of, you know, strength and, you know, also pride because she came out at that time. So using, you know, those different elements to really deepen her message. And then, you know, when it comes to things like red carpets, um, that aren't necessarily for like an overall album cycle. We still want to stay within the Janelle Monet world, but you know, as we're promoting each different project, like how do we tie in bits and pieces from those stories that help her red carpet looks have a little bit more depth to them as well? So the 92nd Academy Awards, Janelle Monet opened the Oscars performing. Tell us about how she wanted to look on the red carpet. What were you thinking about? You know, we wanted something that was going to be classic, but also 
very different than what anybody else would be showing up wearing. <laughs> I think we achieved that. Um, and, you know, it was really amazing to work with Ralph Lauren on that because they have all of that deep, rich knowledge and experience in the classic Americana um, and classic suiting um, and classic silhouettes. But they also love Janelle and love working with us. And so they were really, you know, willing to push their limits and their boundaries as well to create something that felt really special and from the future. Tell us about the dress. First of all, describe it. It was metallic. Yes. So it was it it was like an A-line, really stiff silhouetted skirt with long sleeve bodysuit and hood that was made of a metallic sheer silk Italian tulle mesh covered in, I think it was like 170,000 Swarovski crystals, different sizes. So it gave like that different dimension. So it was metallic, but it was more like just encrusted, sparkling crystal confection. Um, and the skirting was really stiff. It was made, um, they made it uh, out of all boning. Um, and they like shaped it so that it would have this really beautiful, like undulating curvature to it. Um, and you know, when she walked, it kind of like would float above the ground. Um, it was very, very heavy. <laughs> so, um, we have to like, you know, really hoist it up on her waist so that it would have that floating effect. But, um, it was really magnificent. They did such a beautiful job with it. Where was it made? It was made in Italy. Um, the Ralph Lauren team has an atelier there. So um, it was created. All the materials were sourced in Italy. The team of incredible tailors were all in Italy crafting it. And then it was uh, flown directly to L.A. And was it a nail biter getting that dress to Los Angeles? The whole experience was a nail biter. <laughs> Just Why? Because, you know, well, when you're making something that incredible and frankly that expensive you know you really pray that it looks good and it works when you try it on because if it doesn't you know I would never uh, ever force Janelle to wear something that she didn't feel comfortable in and you know all that hard work and time and effort you just really hope that it that it really looks magical when it's put on. Tell us about seeing the dress for the first time. Oh my gosh. Um, well, we had our fitting um, at the addition in West Hollywood. So I walked into the room and they had it on this like beautiful mannequin. And it just looked so incredible, like this floating, sparkling um, vision. It felt like looking at, you know, the biggest, most beautiful Harry Winston diamond in, in a case. You know, it was just like sitting there sparkling in all its glory. Um, and then once Janelle put it on, you know, obviously there was tweaks here and there that had to be made, but it was just so special. It was, to me, it felt like the perfect mix of, of classic, um, of, you know, a little bit of what's going on right now in modern trends, but then also something from the future, like some queen in a Star Wars movie (laughs) floating down to earth. So you mentioned the dress was very heavy. I mean, really, if you look at it, it's as much of a sculpture as it is a dress. How did Janelle Monáe actually 
get to the Academy Awards in that dress? Was she standing up on the way or was she sitting down? So (laughs) um, this is actually funny. Because she was performing, thank goodness, we were able to get ready in the Lowe's Hotel. She had a suite and... Um, next door to the venue? Yes, right next door to the venue, yeah. So there's actually a underground hallway from the Lowe's that leads right out to the sidewalk right on Hollywood Boulevard. So we had her get into the, the full top piece, the bodysuit, and then we had the Ralph team... Uh, roll the skirt on a mannequin like down through down the elevator through the hall um, down to this like little area like right before the door opened on Hollywood Boulevard where we could get ready and had her you know walk with a, a different bottom on through the hotel so that it would be like an easy walk and then once we got there we had we put her into the skirt and then opened the door and she was like right there and we managed to you know, make our way to the front of the line. And, you know, I wasn't really supposed to go on the red carpet. I didn't have a ticket, but I just kind of like snuck my way, (laughs) snuck my way in there. And because I was with Janelle, you know, nobody really like is going to stop me. Um, But the skirt, you know, it really needed my, um, my help to make sure that it laid correctly, um, in photos, just because the the weight of it as she was walking, um, it was helpful to have me kind of like lift it off so it wasn't getting caught under her footing at all. I mean, is it fashion or costume, Alexandra? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that I think that fashion becomes costume. You know, like what was once fashion is now considered costume. So I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. I think that they exist together. And I think when you're working with, you know, superstars, um, that everyone wants to see a little bit of costume. You know, we we don't really want to see these idols up there just in regular plain clothing. In fact, I, I think that sometimes... Some of the gowns that we see on the red carpet are so boring, and I wish that people would tend to uh, lean in a little bit more of a costume direction in a tasteful way. You know, I think there's a fine line, but why not be playful and have fun with it? So you snuck onto the Academy Awards red carpet. Take us back there. (laughs) Tell us your memory of that. It's kind of fun. Oh my gosh, it was so fun. And for me, you know, I've been doing this now for for 10 years and the Oscars has always been a dream of mine and this is my very first one. So um, it was really surreal, honestly. Um, it's a lot smaller than it looks in real life. I mean, like, I guess in my head, I just imagined it to be like miles long. But um, the, the step and repeat is, is pretty short. Um, However, then it goes pretty long after that into interviews. And then um, uh, I was talking to Janelle's publicist as we're moving our way down the carpet. And, you know, these photographers were just chasing after us, like chasing us all the way from like the beginning of the step and repeat to the very end while we were doing like the last few you know, moments of the whole carpet. Um, And her publicist was telling me in all her years of doing this, she's never seen any photographers chasing after people the way they were chasing after Janelle. So I guess we did something right. (laughs) That was pretty cool. 
Alexander Mandelkorn, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. A nice walk down memory lane during these times. Alexandra Mandelkorn is a stylist for Janelle Monet and Kate Nash. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave, and this is Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Stylist's job is made easier when brands have already established a partnership with an actor. What happens when a potential award winner doesn't interest the fashion houses? That challenge faced Mary Fellows. She's a longtime Vogue editor and a stylist to royalty and rock stars. She was hired by Olivia Coleman, beloved leading light of British TV and film. She won the 2019 Best Actress Oscar for her role as Queen Anne in The Favourite. In this period black comedy, the volatile monarch romances her ladies-in-waiting. Fellows got the chance to collaborate with Coleman because of her work with another British star, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And at the time of doing Fleabag, she was uh, working with Olivia because Olivia plays her stepmom, as you probably know. And all the cast and crew of Fleabag suddenly kept on saying to Phoebe, what has happened to you? You've turned from like into this swan. Every day you arrive on set, there's something else you're wearing. And it's like, who's this and what's that? And eventually she said, oh, I've got the stylist. They were like, you've got a stylist. And then Olivia said, I think I want a stylist. And Phoebe was like, well, okay. And then Olivia said, I've never really had a stylist, but I've got this movie coming out called Murder on the Orient Express. And I've got to stand on the red carpet with Michelle Pfeiffer and Johnny Depp and Willem Dafoe and everybody and Penelope Cruz. And uh, I think I probably need a stylist for that. And Phoebe goes, oh, yeah, 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 use Mary. So I met Olivia then and, um, and we went ahead and did Murder on the Orient Express. And at the time she was, you know, to be known for doing a lot of, very niche British television drama and comedy and none of the fashion brands I had really good relationships with around the globe were willing to dress her. Interesting. Why? Because she didn't have a red carpet presence. She wasn't known at the time for kind of being really into style or kind of, you know, she's a very low-key family-minded person. And so they didn't think of her as someone that was a natural fit because also she's not you know, a size zero, and it's really hard to get other sizes of clothing um, quite often that aren't sample size. And it was really interesting. And I kept on thinking, this is madness. You know, these people are mad. She's, you know, she's doing this huge studio movie and these brands are being really ignorant because we're living in an age of where, you know, we have body diversity, age diversity, women of all ages being celebrated, all shapes, all sizes. And this is narrow-minded and frustrating. And so I thought, well, screw this. I'm not going to keep knocking on doors. And I went to a very old friend called Deborah, who had been... Deborah a... Milner. Deborah Milner. Tell us who Deborah Milner is and how she helped you. Deborah is amazing. She was the head of couture for McQueen for 20 years. And there's nothing technically that woman can't do. She literally could pull a rabbit out of a hat and turn a sow's ear into a silk purse, as they say. She's one of the most gifted, gifted couturiers I've ever met. But she, again, like Olivia, actually, that's why they were a good fit. She keeps a very low profile. She's a mum. She's very kind of, you know, under the radar and very, very humble. And I went to her and said, I've got an idea for Olivia's body and I want to do this dress and I'd love to do it with you. And, um, and we did it. And I had a broken leg. And so Deborah and I just did the whole thing over WhatsApp with sketches and fabrics. And then we went up to meet Olivia together. And Deborah just pulled it off by making this unbelievable corset that completely recontoured Olivia's body and gave this amazing illusion of length and height. And we used matte black because it's very, very flattering on the red carpet. Matte black always sucks up all the light. So, you know, it just you just see a lovely sharp silhouette, really, with, you know, some detail. 
just back up to a point you made about size zero and how fashion brands were reluctant to dress anyone that was not a size zero. Is that because a lot of the clothing that you see on the red carpet is loaned and goes back? So it's really just a sample that a designer might have had in their showroom and would just loan out? Um, Yes and no. The problem the brands have, which I have empathy for, is that, you know, it is very expensive making a custom dress. So if every time, you know, you lend something for a fitting, even you hope it'll come back in sellable condition on the shop floor, but it may not. And that's a risk you take because you can't bill a stylist or a talent every time that they did a fitting and put their heel through the hem or need repairs or got makeup down it. So for a name that's not got a a history of being very established for style and uh, who hasn't got a huge Hollywood presence and isn't nominated for an award, all those things, they have to take into account a myriad of different factors that help them make their decision about what kind of investment they'll make on that particular occasion. And so I see both sides. Could you tell us where you were with Olivia when The Favourite, the film which she was nominated for, was premiering at Venice? Um, so we uh, had met and discussed it over the summer um, and uh, her talent management team at United in London said to me, look, Mary, this movie is getting a lot, a lot, a lot of hype um, already from you know, those who've seen it. And we think it's going to have a very big award season. Um, so um, we really need to kind of, you know, pull out all the stops. And I thought it'd be very nice to start off the whole season with Stella McCartney because you know, both Olivia and I, what we had in common was very strong commitment to our value systems. And and I also thought it was quite cool for her to wear a very minimalist black jumpsuit when the movie was so theatrical that to go in something that's sort of with her newly cropped kind of pixie crop hair and, um, you know, a brand like Stella that's known for minimalism and a, and a jumpsuit with a cake, you know, the whole thing just was like the antithesis of what the movie was. So it, it, uh, it felt right. So... The value system was in place and then the Me Too thing came along. It was like, great. We've got a whole heap of other values to think about here. This is just, it's great. And so we um, stuck to the black um, dress code for the Globes and we had Stella again and uh, she looked incredible. <laughs> when Coleman got the Oscar nomination, Fellows turned to Prada. Coleman brainstormed her Oscar dress while on a car ride with fellows to the Palm Springs International Film Festival. For me, there was only ever one uh, brand that we I wanted to work with for the um, the Oscars because actually Prada haven't dressed that many um, big Oscar nominees over the years or winners. And um, to me, Mutual Prada is the uh, in terms of the current brands who are operating, she is the absolute ultimate in terms of the fact that she's a thinker, she used to be a communist, she's so cerebral, and yet her clothing is so unbelievably beautiful. So I'd then done a good few weeks of research in the Vogue archive in London and online, and just put together a whole series of storyboards going back through everything they've ever done, both on runway and off-runway, that I thought was relevant to Olivia, be it a colour, be it a texture, be it a silhouette, be it a collar, be it a zip, be it a hemline, be it a flute, be it a sleeve, be it whatever... So I had a whole load of mood boards which were thematically arranged into terms of different categories of different aspects of Prada's visual code that I thought were relevant to her. And um, I said, look, we've got two hours in the car. This is a really good time just to sit and brainstorm this dress. And she got out a sketchbook. I got out a sketchbook and we had this huge SUV. So we just literally spread out all our storyboards across this giant kind of SUV and put the music on and just got creative and just started tearing pieces of paper up and sketching and adding and subtracting. And what if we did this and we did that? 
And so by the end of the journey, we had enough material for me to send like three or four very clear boards to the team and say, look, this is kind of the direction we're thinking, never you think. And so that was how it sort of initially took shape. Then what did Prada do? They then spent about, I think it was a week to 10 days, and then sent back a series of just breathtaking, mouth-watering, dream-like sketches that sort of gave me goosebumps and maybe slightly draw breath. I mean, they were just incredible. And when I looked at them, I was like, it's number two. It is number two. Hands down, it's number two. And we settled on green or blue. Um, and what I've since found out when we ended up actually using green, as you'll know from that dress, is that green is the least likely colour to be worn by an actress who wins, which I thought was hilarious. Why is that? I, do you know, I don't know the answer to that, actually. Well, green on a magazine cover was always forbidden simply because it tended to make models appear like Martians. <laughs> Mary, for our listeners, describe the dress. So it ended up just being this very tall, narrow, high-necked, sleeveless green column dress with a slightly exaggerated A-line silhouette on the skirt. And then to cover her arms and turn into a train, this beautiful, draped, smoke-coloured, I think it was organza in the end, I'm just looking back now. And then that became a bow and then dropped into a train. So we'd kind of hit all the right notes of what a grand dress would have, but in a very kind of abstract and thoughtful and unusual way. And then we wanted embellishment just to give it this sense of preciousness and occasion. So we'd added these incredible embroideries, which I think took, I mean, 30, something, 30, 40 hours to put on. Wow. In Swarovski crystals, yeah. Tell us about Oscar week. How did the dresses get to Los Angeles? Oh my goodness. Okay, well, so something happened somewhere along the line on their end with some paperwork that hadn't been done. So they then realized they couldn't ship the dress. And so they had then took it to the airport and then it was in such a huge box at the airport they said we're not putting this in the hold like that can't go in there and so they had two people from the team and one of them said who was this wonderful wonderful seamstress who's been with Michia Prada since the beginning who me and Olivia had such a crush on she was like this incredible like another creature from another universe she said no we're not putting it in the overhead cabins either we're not putting it into a garment bag no this dress gets its own seat and I don't know whether money exchanged hands or not, but we had photos sent to us of this dress in a first class seat, lying like a body in a body bag, strapped <laughs> in with a seatbelt on. And so it traveled and it started its journey to LA in, in unbelievable style and carried on just to keep that legacy going. Oscar day. Yeah. <laughs> the preparation process. How long, where were you? Um, so I got up and basically every day, pretty much during Oscar week, I just got up and made my way straight to Chateau Marmont into the lobby and just sat there working, coordinating deliveries and all sorts of other things that were going on. So I was just there until she was ready for us. And she got up, I think she had a facial and some breakfast. And then, um, we got into the room and got unpacked and, um, got the dresses out, got all the accessories out. Then the jewelry arrived about a couple of hours later, she started hair and makeup uh, we started on the Bloody Marys and the champagne. Um, and uh, and it was very mellow because Olivia's just extremely low key and, and very cozy and very, you know, relaxed. And then eventually it was time to go. And so we rehearsed how I had to give her another choreography lesson, which was how are you going to sit in the car? Because if you sit normally, you'll create a massive crease across the front of the dress where your hip bone is. And so we had to teach her like that she could basically recline the seat and sit forward and push her hips forward. 
And so then we had to put, we considered putting tissue paper up inside the dress so it would kind of bulk it out so that it just, she wouldn't, you know, she, in case she did sit forward at any point. But so we did that, did a rehearsal, the, the sitting process, because it's a good hour to get to the theatre. And um, that was that. And then as the car pulled away, I sat on, I literally slumped actually onto the pavement. And as she pulled away in the car and waved, I then burst into floods of tears. I was so overwhelmed. It was such a big moment. And, I, and then the security guard from the shutter came and go, ma'am, is everything okay? I was like, <laughs> he's quite emotional right now. <laughs> I was going to say, all that preparation, it's almost like saying goodbye to a child. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's like there's such a build-up and there's so much hinging on it. And, you know, the entire world, seemingly, well, not the entire world, but it seems like the entire world is going to be looking at what you've done. And you just hope there's going to be no you know, no mistakes or, you know, you just don't, you just pray they're going to be comfortable and, and feel happy and feel as relaxed as they can when they've got, you know, the eyes of the world and all the flash bulbs and everybody else on them. Yeah. I mean, I think what a lot of people uh, don't realize is that, you know, the Oscars is not really a party. It might look like a party, mm. but it is possibly one of the most challenging nights of an actor's career. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it starts, you know, their day starts mid morning and then they're in the car at say two to three o'clock, something like that. And then they have this arduous car journey, then, you know, half an hour to an hour on the carpet. And then they have to sit in a cinema, basically in a big cinema in a huge dress, unlike the Golden Globes where you get to sit and have, have dinner and you have a little drink and it's all very kind of convivial. No. And so I think it's, it's very tiring actually for them. Very, very tiring and very draining. And, you know, everybody wants a piece of you. Everybody and, wants a piece of you that night. And it goes on till the wee hours about 4am. Yeah. It does exactly. There was um, there was karaoke after the Vanity Fair party, uh, which is Olivia's thing. So, final question about the dress: What was it like? Did you watch her getting out of the car and yeah. sailing across the red carpet? What was that like? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, it was. I can only describe it as surreal because it had been so much build up to this moment, and then to suddenly see it like like when you watch any other awards show where it's just. It's there, it's official, it's happening, it's live. And it's just, I was just, my eyes were out on stalks, my jaw was on the floor. You know, when you get that disconnect between your mind and your body, it felt like I was out of body or something. I just couldn't process what was happening in front of me. Like I was watching the Academy Awards and the Best Actress nominee, and that was a dress I'd co-created. And there she was. And it was just, I, I was speechless. <laughs> Mary, what did gowning a Best Actress Oscar winner do for your career? Um, it did a lot, actually. Um, first of all, it gave me a huge amount of confidence because if someone had said to me a year before that, you're going to get, you're going to do this, I would have been like, no, 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 I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think I could do it. And secondly, you know, the phone didn't stop ringing, you know, because I think it wasn't just the, the fact that I dressed uh, a Best Actress winner, but it was the fact that I'd taken someone who, you know, who'd been quite, um, Olivia hadn't had huge confidence in herself stylistically, or sartorially, should I say. And um, she had become this, kind of pin up for women all over the world who were like I'm also in my 40s and I'm not built like a pencil and but look you know she looks modern she looks dynamic she looks timeless she looks glamorous she looks really on point and I think a lot of people were suddenly like gosh if a stylist can do that kind of a transformation sartorially with someone um, well then she must be quite talented. Uh, Final question Mary tell us the influence of an Oscar dress. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm mm-hmm 
Um, I think it's the influences. It depends on the dress. I mean, I think the more the dress looks like something that other people could wear, the more that does drive people into the store. And I think also when a brand are associated with a moment like that, it adds a different sort of flavor to the brand. And so I think it does get people looking at the brand differently because otherwise most of the imagery that customers associate with the brand is otherwise usually runway and campaign imagery. But then when they suddenly see Prada or another brand in real life and also on a woman who's a real woman, you know, um, I think it really helps them see the brand through different eyes. Excellent. Mary Fellows, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, too. Mary Fellows is a stylist and fashion editor who worked with Olivia Coleman during awards season 2019. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. I look forward to sharing more Rodeo Drive stories with you on the next episode. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the City of Beverly Hills. It is edited by Francis Anderton and Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Mandul, Callie McConnell, and Guthrie McCarty-Vachon are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.